Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and our prayer tonight will be given by me. Lord, we love you and we seek you. Um, we need you. Uh, be a lamp to our feet. Open up our eyes and ears so we can hear the truth. And that when I say or a caller say anything that is not of the truth, Lord, that you'll forgive us and just let it pass by, everybody. We pray that you'll help us grow, draw closer to you uh, by faith and that that uh, faith will produce love and we will be a loving people and learn to grow together. We just pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as an FYI, we have three books out there. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. And I was a born-again Mormon. And where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face and right now we are having published, printed, back in uh, New York, a new book, Knife to a Gunfight, that will be available. All of those books, uh, the three, are available now uh, at www.hotm.tv. Knife to a Gunfight will be as well. Also, we have a workbook. It's a 40-page workbook. And the title of it is Using the Bible to Prove that Brick-and-Mortar Religion Should Have Died a Long Time Ago. The End of Material Religion, this is available uh, by just going to the website, hotm.tv, and you can download it. Uh, also, if you don't know how to do that, it's pretty self-explanatory, you can email me and ask for it. And if you're in Utah and you come to campus, of course, this is free. We've got boxes of them over there. And uh, we've done over 500 hour-long shows for your viewing enjoyment. A majority of them about Mormonism, a number of them about Christianity, all at hotm.tv. And then we invite you to come join us at campuschurch.tv uh, on Sundays. Why join us? Well, one, you can watch from your couch or your bed through your phone. Two, you can watch when you want. You don't have to tune in on Sundays. So you can uh, supplement your, uh, viewer, your uh, study of the Bible. Three, there's no obligation at all. Uh, no membership. No, no we, don't, we won't hit you up for cash. You can just tune in. And you're free to walk out into the world and apply what you learn as a Christian without our input, as led of the Spirit. That's www.campuschurch.tv. Every Sunday, if you want to join us live at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and then 2.30 p.m. Um, Mountain Time, and that's milk and meat, respectively. If you don't watch live, you can also go to the site, and we do have done verse-by-verse -verse teachings 
through the entire book of Matthew and John, Romans, uh, working our way through Acts right now. We've also gone through entirely Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, and we're also working through 2 Peter verse by verse. So, uh, and then additionally at campus, we are starting, we have, uh, Ty Wangsgard has started to teach Greek classes, Greek courses in Koine Greek. And they're, they're uh, rudimentary, they're uh, nascent, just the beginning stuff. And he's building on that slowly, and we're taping those, and those will be available at hotm.tv for you to watch whenever you want. So you can start with lesson one and just learn the alphabet, how it's pronounced, and learn uh, diphthongs, and learn all these different things that Ty brings to the table to help you in your study of uh, the New Testament. Uh, maybe we'll get into Hebrew someday uh, once uh, Ty nails that one down. So with all that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I, and saw, I saw, and behold, a white horse. If a person claimed to be a proficient, um, not even a proficient, an expert swimmer, uh, we could do a number of things to determine if that claim was true. One of the things we could do, as strange as it sounds, is we could test the way they smell, especially when their skin gets wet. Swimmers, especially when their skin gets wet, smell strongly of chlorine. It isn't always the case, but it sometimes is. We might examine the texture and sheen of their hair. Uh, swimmers often have shiny, brass-like hair, and while that's often the case, it's not always the case because sometimes they wear caps and you can't tell uh, them apart from anybody else. We might examine their physique. Swimmers traditionally have a physique that is V-shaped, big shoulders, narrow, thin waist. They're lean and sleek almost, if you will. But again, I've known some people who are borderline obese who are very good swimmers. So just because somebody has a streamlined, tapered body that looks like a swimmer's body doesn't necessarily mean they're a swimmer. So having said all this, there is one absolute test to tell if somebody is an expert swimmer. They can swim. They can swim with speed and they can swim with endurance. That would make them up in the area of being an expert swimmer. It's really probably the only surefire way to determine the validity of the claim that someone is an expert swimmer because a smell test or a hair test or a physique test are secondary and those can be faked. You can have somebody with shiny hair and who smells like chlorine and has the swimmer's physique who would drown if you threw him in a pool. When it comes to Christianity, there are a number of indicators that suggest that a person is a Christian, a proficient or an expert Christian if such a thing existed. People can look Christian, uh, but that's an inferior way because that can be faked. They can act Christian. They can talk and speak and, and have a lifestyle that looks Christian. But again, that can be feigned. And they can go to church, they can memorize scripture, they can teach the Bible really well even, but that doesn't necessarily pass the smell test if they are truly a Christian or not. We can't look into their heart to know their faith. That's impossible. Only God can do that. 
So there's really only one way that we can come close to telling if somebody is truly a follower of Jesus or not. It's if they love. If they love God and others, particularly more than they love themselves. Um, if they love their enemies. If they return good when they have received evil. Um, and it's if the love they have is the kind of love that is defined by 1 Corinthians 13, which says that this love that God gives is long-suffering, that this love is kind, that this love is not envious, that it doesn't parade itself about. This love is not arrogant. This love does not behave rudely. It doesn't seek its own purposes. It's not easily provoked. It doesn't think evil. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in truth. Such a person's love bears all things, believes all things, believes all things, huh? Hopes all things, endures all things, and they are possessors of a love that Scripture says never fails. We might call this the actual swimming of the Christian faith. It is what proves the individual Christian to truly be a follower of Christ. Denominations and doctrine and stance, it, it's not even mentioned in how to describe what a Christian's love is like. In fact, listen to what Paul says. I know you're familiar with it. 1 Corinthians 13, 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, hear that, all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could move mountains, that's faith, but I have not love, I am nothing. It's not that having knowledge isn't important. Sort of like having a swimmer's body is important to the top level. You probably won't find an obese Olympian. But nevertheless, that isn't what makes a swimmer an expert swimmer. And so I would go so far to say that whenever, whenever we find people who truly love or try to love best they can, as Christ did, we find a true Christian. This is one of the reasons why we've always maintained that there are LDS Christians, because I've seen them and those who do love. Now, certainly not all of them. You know, uh, there's many who, who really struggle in that area. But I've seen a lot of other professing Christians, professing Christians who say they are swimmers, who they are anything but loving. So it's not, again, the doctrine denomination this. It's really... Are they claiming to follow Christ, believe Christ, and do they exhibit that? Now, don't get me wrong. Everybody has to learn to swim. So I really get what babes in Christ go through and, and salvation by grace through faith before someone learns how to love. That's understandable. Babes in Christ are not expected to be expert, professional Christians. But in the end, when we are talking about the most proficient Christians— those with all the speed, all the endurance to be considered experts, 
The absolute qualifier is not knowledge, it's not faith, it's love. John wrote, before we go to our message tonight, in 1 John 2, uh, verse 3, And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments, which are, by the way, to love. Remember that? A new commandment I give you, and it's to love. He that says, I know him, and keeps not his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whosoever keeps his word, meaning his commandments, which are to love, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. It's how you can tell if God is abiding in you. It's by the love that is coming out of you through him. And then he adds, he that says he abides in him ought himself also so to walk even as he, Christ, walked. How did Christ walk? He walked in love. Perfect love for God and for others. Okay, six weeks ago we left off comparing and talking about the ontology of God. That's the big title from the LDS point of view as compared with the Christian. You remember that. Uh, I've been using Professor Charles R. Harrell's book, This Is My Doctrine, to guide me through some of the documented evidence uh, that we'll be presenting this year. In fact, except for the sudden surprise guests that we'll have, like our Prophet Bob and other topics that might pop up during the year, the thumbnail sketch, Delaney, do we have a graphic or no? Okay, we don't have a graphic for this. The thumbnail sketch of it is, for the next six weeks, our topic is going to be comparing Jesus Christ, Mormonism, and Christianity. And it's not as easily uh, teased apart as you think. For three weeks, we're going to compare the Holy Spirit. Two weeks, Satan. One week, premortal existence. Three weeks, the creation. Four, the fall and humanity. For three weeks, we'll talk about the atonement. For four weeks, the great apostasy. Was there one? Three weeks, the restoration. If there was an apostasy, there needed to be a restoration. Uh, four weeks on priesthood, two on ordinances, four on gathering of Israel, and how the LDS and the Christians talk about that, three on the second coming and the millennium, and what the views are on that, three on resurrection, two on judgment, and then we'll be at the end of the year, December of 2016. So six weeks ago, we left off with a general discussion about God and the LDS version, and how it's morphed over a period of time. We'll be showing how Mormonism's view on those topics morph over a period of time, and how at the beginning, many of them were very similar to what Christians believe today. Tonight, I want to enter into the LDS and the Christian view of Jesus. Now, I have to admit, it's not an easy topic to represent from the Christian view, okay? It's very easy to represent from the Mormon view. The reason for that is, is while the Mormon view of Jesus has morphed and changed over time, today it's concrete. They have a set view of who Jesus is. Within Christianity, we have variable understandings and variable views that don't necessarily nail his ontology to the wall. Um, Here's the thing uh, about that. There are groups that will make things certain 
for you. And through that certainty, they are able to retain people who, um, who just want to relish in not having to think. Christianity is open to some variables, and so uh, it's those groups that provide the certainty on the ontology of God or Christ or Holy Spirit or the devil or the fall and all those things. The more certainty that they can give, the more uh, popular almost that they will be. So it's tough because Mormonism provides certainty, and it gives that on a silver platter, and people just eat it up because they say, this is true, I don't have to think, I trust, and Whereas when you start delving and looking into things, it can be upsetting because what you were taught might not be the truth. And so uh, biblical Christianity, I'll just put it this way, has a lot more wiggle room uh, in some of their doctrines than what you will find in the set doctrines of Mormonism. Now remember, remember, lacking televisions, lacking the internet, lacking even electricity, and the fact that the people of the area that Joseph Smith grew up in were very interested in the Christian faith. Um, Joseph Smith, at a very young age, was exposed to a lot of talk about Christianity. He, uh, his family was very interested in it, and not having that much else to do besides get involved in some folk magic stuff, that was kind of the topic, especially from his mother. I would suggest that he understood, generally, uh, maybe even specific Protestant teachings, as well as most lay Protestants. Uh, he told his mother once, listen, I can go out into the uh, forest, Mom, and read my Bible and learn more uh, than to go to church with you to these Methodists or anything else. I mean, he, and that was at a very young age he suggested that. So, to the subject of Jesus. In Joseph Smith's day, and well before, Christians believed, and they continue to believe, that the Old Testament, to some degree or another, speaks of Jesus. All right? Now, there are Christians who believe that there are 300-plus direct references to Jesus Christ, His advent and incarnation and life and death and resurrection. Okay? Uh, Josh McDowell, who wrote Evidence Demands a Verdict, lays out that these are certain, sure, direct evidences in the Old Testament of Christ. That being said, at the other end of what we might call higher critical uh, Christian thinkers and scholars, there are many who say there are absolutely no direct passages that speak prophetically of Jesus in other words, what I mean by that is the critics are not necessarily saying that the Old Testament doesn't foreshadow, in some sense, of Christ and His coming. But what they'll say is, you can't take a passage and say that the person who wrote that, Isaiah or whoever, was writing about Christ. They'll say he, they were writing about something in their day or something they did not know about at all, but that you cannot prove that that's what they meant when they wrote that. So what that means is that people, when they read the Old Testament, have to interpret that that is speaking about Christ. And that's where the division lies within the Christian community on these two polarized extremes. In other words, higher critics of Scripture say they could have been writing about something in their day and age or something they knew nothing about when they wrote what they said, because no verse of the Old Testament can be taken to show contextually that it was speaking of Jesus and Jesus alone. There's always another side to what was being said and why. 
So, obviously, Jesus' name, Jesus' name, is never even Yeshua's name, Joshua, is never used point blank in the Old Testament to describe the coming Messiah. So, within the Christian faith, we have some extreme views. One says the Old Testament is talking about Christ all over the place, and that is what they were talking about. And the other extreme view is it's never talking about him, but men have to read the contents and then assign those passages to the person of Jesus. Got all that? I happen to personally believe that there are multiple allusions, references to Christ Jesus in the Old Testament, woven throughout most of it to the point that almost all of it, in my estimation, is a foreshadowing or type of him and his ministry, uh, etc. However, I am not so sure that any single passage in the Old Testament was directly and only speaking of him prophetically. So I see both sides. I agree with Josh McDowell, but I also agree that when the, when the Old Testament was written, I don't think the prophets knew who or what they were really talking about. And if they did, it was to something of their day, like to David's own life, that would later be extrapolated and applied to Christ. Um, in fact, we're going through the New Testament. You can see places where the apostles actually use passages from the Old Testament to support their claims that have absolutely nothing contextually to do with Christ. They use it to say, and this, and it says here in Hosea or whatever, and, the, and speaking of Christ, but when you look at the context of what's said in Hosea, it has nothing to do with him. And so it takes spiritual eyes to be able to take those contents from the Old Testament and assign them to Christ. Uh, nevertheless, the New Testament writers themselves make it very clear that the Old Testament was all about Christ. Okay, So this is where we have some support for Josh McDowell's claim. Because, for instance, Luke wrote in Acts 3.18, But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophet that Christ should suffer, he has so fulfilled. So Luke says, look at the Old Testament prophets already told us, you know, and we read it right there. In his gospel, Luke quotes Jesus as saying, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So the higher critics who say there's not a single passage that speaks to him all you got to do is read what Jesus said, and if you believe that, then you have to know that those passages were speaking of him, okay? John goes so far as to say that the spirit of prophecy, which is the entire Old Testament was when John was writing, John says this is the testimony of Jesus. All of the Old Testament he calls the testimony of Jesus, and Paul adds that passages that speak of Jesus in the Old Testament were veiled from those who were spiritually hardened. So what we learn from Paul is you have to have the spiritual eyes and inclination when you read the Old Testament to see Christ being revealed. In 2 Corinthians 3.14, Paul writes, But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. Which veil is done away in Christ? What he's saying there is there is a veil placed over the face of people when they read the Old Testament, and it was untaken away, untaken away. It didn't reveal Christ until Christ came, and then it started to be revealed. So I think it goes without saying that the Old Testament was believed by the New Testament apostles 
to contain endless revelations of Christ, but revelation, those revelations had to be discovered from people with discerning spiritual eyes. And most Christians agree that for the faith to be fully and properly seen, um, that uh, Christ has to come into view by the Spirit. All right? Now, when Joseph Smith stepped up to the plate to deliver a faith that offered far more solutions and certainty than what currently existed, he seems to take the view of the Old Testament and of the Jews prior to Christ and say they not only prophesied of the coming Messiah, so he stood with the very traditional view of Christians, the Old Testament speaks of the Messiah, but Joseph Smith had them literally speak of Jesus openly and with direct references. In my estimation, Smith, in concretely sticking Jesus into the Old Testament, uh, he gained the favor of people who wanted more certainty, who didn't want the wiggle room that goes on with people's interpretation of what's in the content of the Old Testament. How exactly did he do this? Well, in the Book of Mormon, well before Jesus was born, Smith actually had Book of Mormon characters be well acquainted with Jesus and with the plan of redemption. Now, this is hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born. The prophets in the Book of Mormon were openly talking about him and his birth and, and the plan of redemption. He had Book of Mormon prophets explain how passages in the Old Testament were about Jesus. So in the Book of Mormon, they would describe how the Old Testament narrative is talking about Jesus before he was born. And that's how familiar Joseph Smith portrayed his Book of Mormon characters to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, let me give you an example. In the Old Testament, Malachi wrote, Son, S-U-N, as in the sky, of righteousness. Okay? That's in Malachi 4.2. Joseph Smith in 3 Nephi 25.2, reworded that title to be S-O-N of righteousness and included it in his narrative, which improved upon the biblical narrative. The biblical narrative said S-U-N of righteousness, which was not a direct allusion to Christ, but in the Book of Mormon, S-O-N of righteousness is a direct allusion to Christ, and he improved upon what the Old Testament was giving. So to me, these unfounded improvements so to speak, uh, upon Christian discussions are something to smile about, but I don't think you can take them seriously. Uh, what Joseph did was remove all doubts from people uh, who trusted him. And in fact, he retranslated in his inspired version of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And in the very first chapter of the book of Genesis, which Moses wrote, he included the title, The Only Begotten, referring to Jesus. Okay? This is a bold move. This is, I mean, he's retranslating the Bible, first of all. He's doing it by inspiration. And he includes only begotten in the text of the Old Testament, which is not found anywhere in the Christian Old Testament, right? Genesis 1-2, Genesis 1-27, Genesis 1-29 of the Joseph Smith translation all include only begotten. Three times. First chapter. 
Okay, that's how bold he would say the Old Testament guys knew Jesus. That he would, in his translation, include that. In his Book of Mormon, where details about Jesus are apparently known about by the people and prophets well before the Incarnation. For example, Joseph Smith had his Book of Mormon characters know precise details about Jesus' birth, the name of his mother, and the exact year that he would be born. Something, again, the Old Testament prophets never even got close to explaining. Except you, if you look at Daniel, you might be able to interpret that. As an interesting aside to this, in the early pages of the Book of Mormon, there's a prophet named Lehi, 1 Nephi 10.4, an angel, 1 Nephi 19.8, and men known as the prophets, 2 Nephi 25.19, who all predict clearly that Jesus would be born precisely 600 years from the time Lehi leaves Jerusalem. That was the prophecy that both uh, Lehi knew, an angel knew, and the prophets all knew, okay? But this knowledge seems to have been forgotten by the time a Book of Mormon character named Alma comes along, because in Alma 13.25, Alma writes, I hope that he might come in my day. So we have firm testimony of he's coming 600 years from the time G, uh, Lehi leaves, and then later on, Book of Mormon characters who had the plates, who had the writings, are, are like, I hope he comes when I'm here. So it seems to be forgotten. Also trumping the Bible's pre-Christ prophets, the Book of Mormon writers, hundreds of years before his incarnation, knew his name. And not only his name, but his Greek name. Uh, referring to him as Jesus in the Book of Mormon, not even Yeshua in the Hebrew, 600 years before Jesus was born. That's right at the beginning of, of uh, the Hellenistic Empire, to me, I think. And so there's an interesting aside to this about Jesus' date and month of birth. S stick with me. In the LDS Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, verse 1, um, which are direct revelations from God to Joseph Smith, it says, quote, the rise of the Church of, Je of, Church of Christ in these last days being 1,830 years since the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the flesh. What they said was, that revelation from Joseph Smith, Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, verse 1, has Joseph Smith say, we are establishing the Church of Christ on earth, restoring it, 1,830 years since Jesus came on earth in the flesh. Got that? This was written on April 6, 1830. And because of this, trusting in this revelation of Joseph Smith, the LDS have long claimed to know the actual date of Jesus' birth and year. April 6, year zero. Okay? If you don't believe me, see Harold B. Lee's conference report, April 1973. See Spencer W. Kimball conference report, April 1975, page 4. All of them speak of April 6th, the day the church is restored, 1830, as being 1,830 years from the day Jesus was born. And you talk to any relatively knowledgeable LDS person, and they'll say he was born April 6th. Okay? What's revealing about this is most modern scholars agree, even LDS scholars today, 
that Jesus was probably born somewhere between 4 and 7 B.C., all right? Uh, Paul Meyer, professor of ancient history, says, since the chronologies of the Herods, the Roman emperors, and the governors within the time frames of the Gospels are firm, Jesus' birth can reliably be placed between June and December of 5 B.C. It's almost agreed upon ubiquitously by scholars that he was born at probably 5 and somewhere between June and December. So that gets rid of April, first of all. It gets rid of April uh, 6th, second of all. It gets rid of 1830, third of all. And uh, so this, only, this not only takes Jesus' apparent birth on April 6th out of the running, it obliterates Doctrine and Covenants 21 uh, and Joseph's claim that the rise of the church in these last days was 1,830 years since Jesus was born. That's a false prophecy. That's a false proclamation. It doesn't fit with today's knowledge of the dating of Scripture. Let's talk about Jesus' name. And then we'll get to Keith in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Uh, his name was given first in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and said, speaking of Mary, she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, this is a translation from the Greek where the name Jesus is translated Iesus. And Iesus is translated from the Hebrew Yeshua, which is our Joshua. So how did we get Jesus? Where did Jesus come from? Hebrew, Yeshua. Greek, Iesus. Latin, Isus. And then to English, Jesus. That's, that's four steps where we got the name Jesus. Of course, Americans say you have to say Jesus, Jesus, in order for him to hear you or to heal or to be saved. You have to say Jesus. Uh, you can't say Isis, you can't say Iesus, you can't say Yeshua, you can't say Joshua, you can't say God, you have to say Jesus. It's insanity. But people often refer to him also as Jesus Christ, right? And if this was his full name, uh, as if this was his full name, but Christ, Christos, simply means the anointed one. So what we're really saying is Jesus, the anointed one. That's what we're saying when we say his name. Now, typically, there are no surnames in Jesus' day. It wasn't Jesus Jones or Jesus Robertson. There's no surnames, right? And so what they would do when people had the same name is they would distinguish them by their father or their grandfather. So Jesus, Yeshua, the anointed one's father's name was Yosef. So people in town would have called Jesus in his day and life, Yeshua ben Yosef, Yeshua, son of Yosef. That's how they would have known who he was. In Hebrew, uh, that would have been Yeshua ben Joseph, and in Aramaic, it would have been Yeshua bar Yosef, okay? Now, to those who didn't know Yosef was Jesus' father, they would have referred to him by the place he came from. So it would have been Yeshua of Nazareth. That's how they would identify him, okay? All this is going to make sense in a sec. So the name Jesus Christ was in reality a long way off from the actual person of Yeshua bar Yosef, okay? So it would not be until the early days of his ministry when we would start to hear Christos associated with his name. First by John the Baptist when he identifies him, 
as the Messiah, the Messiah, and then uh, uh, Peter, when he says, you are the Christ. This is when we start to first get Christ associated with Yeshua bar Yosef, okay? And where the writers of the gospel certainly use the name Jesus Christ, they were writing retroactively or retrospectively of a time when Jesus lived 30 years plus or whatever later, so they would say Jesus Christ, but that was just in reference to what they ultimately knew he was. So, uh, it's only in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where uh, in Peter's day, day of Pentecost, where the names are tied together in a current sense, a current narrative, when Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the first time for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's almost like a real-time quote of what, Je of what was said, but not so in the Book of Mormon which once again trumps biblical Christianity and has its prophets use, again, Jesus' Greek name, not even his Greek name, his transliterated Greek name for, into Latin, Isis, into English, Jesus, from gold plates that were written way, way back before uh, Jesus was born, and they referred to him as Jesus in the Anglicanized American language. So in 2 Nephi 10.3, the angel revealed to a Nephi prophet Jacob the confusing line, Christ should be his name. That's what it said, Christ should be his name. Again, that was 550 years before he was even born. It was written from Jerusalem, and still the Book of Mormon uh, writers apparently use Christ, a Greek term, not even Messiah, not even Yeshua, you know. But to take it way, way out there, almost done, Joseph Smith, in his inspired translation of the Bible, listen, he actually and repeatedly stuck Jesus Christ into his retranslation of Genesis. Of Genesis. We don't even see it showing up rightly in the New Testament until Acts chapter 2. Joseph takes it and he puts it in the first book of the Bible. Uh, I mean, three times he does it. He says in Genesis 653, 660, and 757 that Jesus Christ is the only name which shall be given under heaven whereby salvation shall come upon the children of men, borrowing from Paul's words. I mean, Joseph Smith's inspired translation of Genesis goes so far to say that anciently the patriarchs of the Old Testament baptized in water in Jesus Christ's name. You can find that in Genesis 8, 11. Translated, uh, Joseph Smith translation in the book of Moses 8.24. So this is where we begin our comparison between Jesus of Christianity and the Jesus of Mormonism. We can see from the onset that the founding prophet Joseph Smith led people to believe that he could not only give them further insight into the person of Jesus, but that he even had the ability to show how the biblical writers either failed or evil translators took out, removed uh, the simple Anglicanized name out of Scripture, and he was the one who was able, through inspiration, to put it back in. We'll continue our discussion about Jesus and Mormonism and Christianity in the next 
few weeks to come. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. We have a spot. Hit it. We're back. We have Keith in Elizabethtown, New Jersey, and Jay from Las Vegas, Nevada. Let's go with Keith. Keith, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Um, so I listened to some of your recent discussions about the end of material religion. Yeah. Basically uh, existing up through, Jesus, up, up through Israel, but not after Jesus, right? Oh, about um, what? Okay. So I wanted to give some reasons why I think that's wrong. Okay. 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 Basically, I have four verses I want you to pay attention to. I can't get through all of them, maybe. I don't know if you have time. But, can, we, can we do them um, one at a time? Sure. So okay. there's two of them. They go in pairs, I guess you would say. Okay. Okay, okay so Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, and Daniel 2, 44, right? Okay. That's one pair, right? All right. And then another pair is Isaiah 22, 20 through 22, and then Matthew 16, 18 through 19. Okay, will you read them? Okay. Uh, I'll try my best. Okay. Well, here's basically the gist of what I wanted to get at. Um, I wrote it out here. Um, Daniel 2 gives a prophecy about subsequent world kingdoms, starting off with Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. But then God says that in the days of that last kingdom, God will destroy these kingdoms and establish his own kingdom, which would last forever, Daniel 2:44. The prophet Isaiah says the same thing in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, and says a child named Mighty God would be given to us, and the government would be on his shoulders. There would be no end to the increase of his government. He will establish it and uphold it from then on and forevermore. Okay. Okay. So we have the Messiah, Jesus, establishing a government. He specifically repeatedly uses the word government in Isaiah, right? Yeah. It says they would never end. It would increase and it would spread throughout the world forever, right? Okay. Yeah. And then, okay. And then, in Daniel two forty four, um, Daniel two forty four, Isaiah twenty two twenty through twenty two, this is speaking of the Old Testament kingdom, right? Um, God is talking um, through Isaiah, and He says, "In that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hakiah. I will clothe him with your tunic and tie his sash securely around him. I will entrust him with your authority." He will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he shuts, no one may open. Uh, what he opens, no one may shut. What he shuts, no one may open. And then Matthew 16, 18 through 19, uh, Matthew basically uh, borrows from that. And he says, uh, Jesus says to Peter, instead of Eliakim here, he's talking to Peter. He says, you are rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not, um, uh, not overcome it. Um, whatever, uh, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Basically okay, so recording back from what he opens, no one can shut, what he shuts, no one can open. Yeah. And the, and the keys, right? Okay. So there was, there was a real kingdom in the Old Testament, right? A real kingdom that he, God, was the ultimate king of, but he worked through people, he worked through Eliakim, gave the keys to Eliakim, and then he says that 
that the Messiah would set up a government, and the government would increase forever, never be, never go away. I agree. And in in Matthew 16, Jesus the King gives the keys of his kingdom, just as he did to Elijah, and he gives them to Peter. He says, uh, "I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Okay. I don't disagree. Okay. So where is your government? Okay, uh, the first thing I would say in our discussion is if I had uh, uh, my interlinear, I would look to see uh, government. Second huh? thing, I would look to see what that is because in the New Testament they use government throughout the King James and it doesn't mean government uh, huh? in many places. The second thing I would say is I do believe that there is a spiritual government that definitely continues on of the kingdom, that it will never huh? end, that Christ is over that kingdom, and it will go on forever and ever. So I don't disagree with the content of any of those passages. I just believe that they're, they're all spiritual. Okay, but you don't have a hierarchy within your government. Governments normally have hierarchies. And then we see a hierarchy established right there with Peter. He gives the keys to a single person, just as he gave them singly to Elijah and Isaiah. He okay. gave them singly to Peter yeah. in Matthew 16. Uh, uh, again, uh, when you're talking about Peter and him giving those keys singly, we see Peter going, and he's the first one to preach at Acts. So he opens the door of the gospel there at Acts when the Holy Spirit falls. Peter was the one who opened the door for Cornelius, not Paul. Yep. And, and so he's opening those doors. But then we see a number of things happen without Peter's approbation. Peter was yep. given the keys to, as the chief apostle to open those doors, but it doesn't mean he alone had the keys because later we see Jesus actually say to all of the apostles, you will and not just he will. Matthew 18, he doesn't give them the keys. He gives them the power to bind and loose, but he does not give them the keys. Matthew yeah, in that, in that passage, you're right. In that passage, but in other passages, which again, I would have to get it, but I know it's there. He does give uh, the power to bind and loose to everybody there. Yeah, I would agree he gives the power to bind and loose, but he only gives the keys to Peter. You're right, and that's because Peter opened those doors I just mentioned, and he was set to do that, and he did it, and we see that fulfilled through Acts. Okay, so then in Acts 15, whenever they're having a doctrinal dispute and they get together, read the whole chapter and pay very close attention. The apostles and the elders cannot agree with each other, but then Peter stands up, and he gives his opinion, and then everybody agrees with it. Okay, well, that... that spoke, everybody agrees. That's one instance, but we also know James was the head of the church at Jerusalem, and we know that Paul, he contended with Peter face-to-face -face over Peter's weakness of not eating with the uh, Gentiles in, the, in, the front of, in front of the Jews. So we can see there was an equal exchange. There was, Peter was not. So are you taking a Catholic position? Is that what I'm kind of hearing? Oh, yeah, I used, to be, I used to be Protestant until I studied, I studied Got history it. and I studied the Bible, and Got I it. concluded that the first, the first generation of Christians were Catholic. They used the word Catholic. They had bishops. They, uh, yeah. they, had, they had mass. They had the Eucharist. Um, yeah. Everything that was there. Yeah, and, and, and you know what? I'm not saying that it wasn't there, but I think it was a misappropriation from the get-go. That's where you and I would disagree. But, but you know... Not, the thing is, it's in the Bible, is what I'm saying. I'm not saying this is some sort of corruption that happened in the first century. The original teaching was actually what Sean McCraney taught, and then... Like later along, Catholicism ruined it, and then you're finally restoring it. Right? Oh, no, I'm not restoring anything. I'm, yeah. not re I'm not restoring a damn thing. 
except probably something bad. But, he, but the, <laughs> Isaiah says that God would establish this. He did. Okay. And it's a spiritual it kingdom. Overcome ever, right? It's a spiritual and, kingdom, though, my brother. It's spiritual. Yeah, but then in, wait, then in Jude, doesn't doesn't God say through Jude that uh, the faith was delivered once to the saints, right? Right. Deliver the faith once to the saints. And then in First Corinthians one, Paul says that we must be perfectly united in doctrine. Yeah. Right. Who is he, who are, who is Jude and who is Paul writing to? Everybody. How do you where do you I'm get evidence of that? Where's your evidence that they were writing to everybody when those specific epistles were addressed to the people of those areas in that day and that age? Okay, well, it's the word of God it applies to all of us, I assume, right? No, you assume, but unfortunately that assumption is correct spiritually, but it's not materially. So when you use those passages in the New Testament and suggest that that was being spoken to you today, you are making a leap that I don't see founded in Scripture anywhere. I do well, no, not I mean, ever see I mean, them say, what we're writing is for you, Keith. Well, no, that's not what I'm saying. I mean, that's obviously not what I'm saying. But, I mean, it's, as I say, it's right there in Scripture. You see Matthew 16, he gives the keys. In Acts, Acts chapter 1, whenever a leader dies, he is replaced. Uh, Paul not whenever. Laid upon him. Paul gets his hand laid upon him for a his authority, then he tells Timothy that Timothy is going to pass on his authority through the laying on of hands. There's no, there's no idea that this is going to end. This is the, the well, kingdom of God. Let me stop church, you. Right? Peter himself. There's nothing there that says it will ever end. Peter himself said the end of all things is near. So I think that's that's incorrect when you say these things were never going to end. I think well, what you're witnessing. So Isaiah says that the government would never end. Okay, that, and the government yeah, does not end. The government does not end. So what was Peter talking about when he said the, the, in the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 16, the kingdom will never end, Isaiah 9. I don't believe the kingdom does end, Keith. I agree with you. But the keys of the kingdom were handed to Peter. The kingdom is not in to Peter. The kingdom of God is within you, Peter. It's not in an institution. That's my whole point. That's not what he told Peter, is it? No, it's not. No, it's not what he told Peter, because what Peter was doing was keeping the church alive before the destruction of it in 70 A.D. That's why he was telling Peter that. That's why there was literal apostles then. And I mean, if we're going to go down the, if we're going to go down the road of, of listen, there's never been uh, a, the church without apostles. And where are the apostles of the Catholic Church? The, the original apostles were called, they were called the apostles. Their successors are called the bishops, the episcopacy. Oh, so the, the, Episco the Episcopacy of, of, of the Catholic Church are the Twelve Apostles? No, not the Twelve Apostles. You're, you're bringing Mormonism into it. This no, 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 Mormonism, no. Right? But wait, Keith, you said that they replaced. We look in the Book of Acts, and they kept replacing when one was killed or lost or whatever. They replaced. So we're talking about the Apostles being replaced. Where are your Apostles? This is, how the Catholic, this is how the Catholic understanding of authority works. Just give me a second, okay? Got it. God came in the flesh, right? Yeah. The century. Yeah. Established his kingdom, had led by the apostles, right? Yeah. He gave them the new revelation. Before Christ, nobody knew this new revelation. Okay. He gave the new revelation and that, that was taught to the apostles. They okay. then wrote it down and taught it also orally to uh, their successors, right? They handed their authority to protect their teachings to the bishops, right? No. Now, the bishops, listen, just let me finish. The bishops not get new revelation like the prophets of Mormonism, right? They're not getting new revelation, right? They're protecting 
and interpreting what they were given by the apostles. Did they protect and interpret? Yep, because they're guided by the Holy Spirit to protect it. The bishops, just, they, they protected in, in uh, the, the apostolic writings? Yeah, yep. They certainly did. They protected them so well they didn't share them with anybody. That's not true at all. Have no, it's read, very true. Uh, not, have, you, have you read non-Protestant sources? Of, I've, of, uh, I've read some. On, on these I've read some. Not many. Okay. Listen, we yeah, are gonna, we, we got another we got another caller, Keith. But I love I love the fact that we could talk about it. You and I are far apart, but is Christ your Lord and Savior? Of course, that's, that's what are, the you, I know. Are you saved by grace through faith? By grace through faith, yes. Right, and so I, I have no beef with you. You be a Catholic. You look to your bishops. You believe authority needs to go on. You and I disagree on the material versus the spiritual, but that's just a disagreement. We will someday okay. know, uh, but we'll never agree on that thing, but let's agree on Christ and move forward. Okay, then I would just ask this one last thing. All right. Okay, don't read the Church Fathers as being infallible like Scripture, right? Right. Just ask yourself, has God guided the Church, has the Holy Spirit guided the Church, and ask yourself, where were my teachings as in you? Where were your teachings in the first century, second century, third century? Where were the teachers, 1 Corinthians 12, the teachers inspired by God who were teaching your doctrine in every century. When you say my doctrine, are you talking about you talking that, about what I'm suggesting? Yeah, I'm saying I can find all of my all the teachings I believe in. I can find them throughout every century of Christian history, because the the teachers are guided by the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 12. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit to teach, right? So yeah, God inspired the teachers. They're not just men themselves, right? Right. I can find people teaching my doctrine in every single century. Okay. Therefore, the people guided by the Holy Spirit teaching your doctrine in all those centuries. Right. It's a confrontational uh, uh, question. I'm not going to address it, but I'll allow you to ask it, and we're going to move on to Jay. I thank you okay. so much, Keith. Yep. Bye-bye. Um, but I will answer it offline, uh, off the phone. Um, I think that institutional uh, men quickly corrupted the church, and I think it was it's evidenced by the fruit that they provided uh, all, from Constantine forward. And so the fact that his beliefs are echoed in those men's writings uh, is irrelevant to me. I don't see the way that the church has been interpreted echoed in Scripture. That's the difference, is he sees his, the things he believes echoed by the early church fathers all the way to the present, where I don't see those beliefs echoed in Scripture, and so there's a difference. But he's welcome to that, and uh, we're taking that. Let's go to Jay in Las Vegas. Jay, in Las Vegas, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how's it going, Sean? I got a question for you. Yes. Um, my wife and I are, are talking through the, uh, the Bible, and she's pulling up a lot of stuff on Paul when he uh, started um, spreading the church that um, 80% of the Bible was written by Paul, and um, there's a lot of people on the web and wherever saying that Paul actually started Christianity, and he actually kind of pulled it away from Jesus, because after uh, the, on his road to Damascus, after his change, he kind of like took off for, what, 17 years and and did his own thing. He, he didn't. He didn't. Um, uh, he 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 did his own thing through uh, revelation through Christ. Yeah. 
And um, I'm kind of saying, <laughs> you can't be knocking Paul. He, he spread the word, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm just trying to solidify that um, uh, Paul wasn't doing his own thing. Um, and I just wanted to get your take on that. Well, uh, without Paul, some of the criticisms online are absolutely true. Without Paul, we would not have evangelical Christianity or Christianity the way we see it today. What we would have is Judaism because Peter and James and John and the rest, they were speaking to Jewish converts primarily. And so it was Paul who Christ called to the Gentiles and Peter recognizes that Paul's writings are scripture. He uses the word grapha, graphos, I think it's graphos, in yeah, his writings. Yeah, yeah. So Peter himself recognized Paul's writings as scripture, as canon, and Paul, we wouldn't have the, the, the gospel of grace understood uh, at all. Because if you just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, and then you read First and Second Peter, and you read James, and you, and you read even John, you don't come away with understanding grace. It was Paul who said, look at the rest of the world, you guys are not Jews. You guys have never been under the law. Therefore, you guys simply need to believe. You don't need to repent first for putting Christ to death. You don't need to repent for failing against the law. You never had the oracles and the prophets. You guys need to believe. Then you'll repent for your wayward lives as you grow in Christ. So there is a marked difference between Peter and James and John and Andrew and Paul. And so when people criticize that, they are absolutely right. Without him, we would not have the Christian faith that we have today. The question, okay. yeah, okay, but uh, but they're saying like, hey, Paul took off and started his own church. I mean, um, he started I something guess, okay, different. They're right, and uh, okay, that's all I wanted to, uh, to establish. Yeah, I yeah. Guess. There's there's some merit to the to the complaint. To tell you the truth, there's some merit to it, but. If you read his writings, the guy knew his stuff. And, and actually, Peter said, his, his writings are hard to understand. Peter said that because it was a completely different approach that Paul had, what a mind he had to explain what Christ meant to the Gentile world as opposed to the Judah, Jewish. Thanks so much, Jay. We love you. Oh, okay. Thanks a lot, John. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, quickly, how much time? One, One minute. Darn. Oh, some good emails and some good questions. Um, let me just read this one online, and I will get to David N., Frank J., and Steve R.'s questions next week, right off the top before we get into it. But this says, do you believe in Paul's teachings that grace plus nothing saves us? Just wondered. Um, I believe that grace is it's, uh, comes through faith, and that it is what saves us. Uh, however, I do believe that uh, somebody who has understood their salvation by grace, through faith, will love. I do not think you can extract the commandment to love from the commandment to believe. So, uh, it's almost like... Uh, I'm trying to think of a quick analogy. Uh, you can't 
be saved by grace through faith without the caboose. You can't get on the engine of the train that is saved by grace through faith without the caboose of love being there too. I would say it that way. James makes that clear. This is all through scripture that the fruit of love will be produced by those who have been saved. It doesn't save us. So I stand, yes, we are saved by grace through faith, period. But I do believe the fruit of love will always manifest itself in those who have been. Join us next week. We continue on talking about Jesus and Mormonism and Christianity here in Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light. Start.